I'm going to ask you uh, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, 12, excuse me, and um, um, I, I believe that the aspect of the sincere Christian um, is getting strong, stronger yet dying. Now, what do you mean by that, Dwight? I believe that the sincere Christian is becoming stronger as an individual, but the desire of others to be a sincere Christian is a fading and passing, dying truth. Those who are sincere are caught on fire and nothing can stop them. But the drive to be sincere, fewer and fewer are taking that gauntlet. Um, this is a is a patchwork message that I hope um, I won't too much confuse you. Uh, there's a lot of scripture involved, but I pray that uh, what will be communicated will be something you can take home with you and it will stay with you. You know these verses. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul had spent, I, I believe, this is Dwight Knight speaking, I believe that the, the greatest book written on earth is the book of Romans. It is the Pulitzer Prize, perpetually the Pulitzer Prize winning book of the world. Um, it is the gospel according to Paul written to us. Now when I say us, I'm talking about the Gentiles. He uh, labored to communicate for the Gentile world what was absolutely essential to veer them away from the multiplicity of gods, which in itself is a contradiction, and idol worship, to veer them away from the purported philosophy of the supremacy of man and the importance of self-fulfillment. He tried his best to communicate the absolute certainty of eternity and the worth of living an invested life of 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years here with no no direction, no drive for self-aggrandizement or self-fulfillment that the investment of your life for eternity is what you want to do. Uh, It was written during uh, the the first part of his third missionary journey, and uh, he spends time with the first three chapters talking about um, the, the introduction of his message to talk to all his audiences. He talked to the, the man who was just a decadent heathen, chapter one. Then in chapter two, he talks about the man who was a moral, upright fellow trying to just make it by in the world. Then he turns to the Jew in the end of chapter two and into chapter three, and he finally just draws this conclusion. Nobody's getting it right. And then he introduces in chapter three that the way to get what you really desperately need, what God has for you, is this thing called righteousness by faith. And then he, after that, he gives us three chapters of of, of polemic, of arguments, of arguments, of rhetoric, uh, rhetorical questions, and and, and challenges. He first starts with an example. In chapter four, he talks about the example of the life of Abraham who lived by faith. 
And then chapter five, he talks with it in terms of uh, the discussion is, let me give you the logistics of it. Let me give you the technical aspect. Let me tell you what really was going on and what really happened and how God dealt with it. And he, he, he makes it very clear. He said, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. So he, he gives us technique. And then he says, now understand something. Let me give you application. I gave you example. I gave you explanation. Now let me give you application. Should we live in sin now that grace may abound? God forbid. It's, 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 it's a rhetorical demanding no. Do you really understand what grace is? Grace is not a free ticket to a concert. Grace is something you don't deserve. And he spends all of chapter 6 talking about um, uh, uh, the, the, the importance of grace. And then he comes up with chapter 7. Now that grace has been imaged on us, he says, here's my problem. I know I was a sinner. I know I was lost. I know I didn't deserve the grace of God. God solved that problem for me. But yet, my issue is I'm still in the flesh. And how do I walk out? How do I live out this this life of grace that God has given when I still have a moral compass called the law? The law is not my justifier. It does not save me. But God still says you have a moral compass that is constantly going to remind you in the spirit and in your soul that there's righteousness to be lived out. But how can I do that when in me dwells what? No good thing. I know that in me, that is in my flesh dwells, no good thing. I want to do it. I'm a Christian. I know I need to do it. But how do I do it? And then he comes back and says, you know what? Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And that's in the first of back in the time when a man committed murder, first degree murder, they would, the Romans would wash him with lye soap, wash the body of the dead person with lye soap, and chain them together until the death and the decay of the person you were carrying around eventually killed you. And that's what Paul says. I have this thing called the flesh that is chained to me and I can't get rid of it. And then he says finally in verse number 25 of chapter 7, I thank God for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gives me the ability by his spirit. So he says in chapter 1, chapter 8, verse 1, there is... No condemnation to them that in Christ Jesus who walk not in the flesh but in the spirit. And then he explains that. And chapter 8 is the zenith chapter of the book. It's the high mark of the, chap- of the book. Then in chapter number 9, he talks about, okay, has God forgotten his people Israel? No, no, no. He talks about the past condition of Israel. Then in chapter 10, the present condition of Israel. And then chapter 11, he talks about the future of Israel. So after all of that, he's going through all of that, he gets to this complete, this, this, this complete, explanation, he draws this this conclusion. He says, now because of all that, I beg you, I implore you, and the word beseech there, in it, if you were to, to uh, get Sphero Zadophy's uh, book, um, the, uh, the New Testament Greek um, dictionary, he says that the word beseech there is one where a man is crawling on rocky ground on his knees, begging for his life to be spared. He says, I beseech you, I beg you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world. And a matter of fact, his whole point up to this up to this chapter is 
Don't you see now the futility of this world, that every kind of pursuit in, it, in this world at all, any kind of ambition in this world at all is ridiculous. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. So this is his, his backdrop, and that's why it's going to be our canvas for what I'm going to talk about, the audacity of the Christian life, the audacity to live uh, the uh, Christian life as Paul has talked about it, to the audacity to, to live a life not that, that debates sinners and atheists, but the life that makes their lifestyle and their belief ridiculous. That's the whole point. The point is not that we go out and we find some skeptic, some atheist, some wired head agnostic and say to him, uh, let's have an argument. No, the life of the Christian makes the life of the non-believer both futile and ridiculous. That's the whole idea of Christianity. That's why Jesus didn't have to put up banners. That's why Jesus didn't have to have a microphone. That's why John the Baptist didn't have to send out flyers. People saw the audacity of their life and followed them in the wilderness by multitudes. And the words that they said spoke in their language, challenged the contradiction of their soul's craving for something else. And when God was introduced by the audacity of their life, People, as the Jews said, all the world is going out to hear him. You don't have to become a college graduate. You don't have to work on a dissertation. You have to live it, and then when someone asks, you just explain. A woman who met him at a well, a hussy by the water well, stood there, heard him tell things that she couldn't expose to her own mind, caused her to be an evangelist that has not been equaled. She saved a whole town with one line. Come see the man who told me all I ever did. That's the audacity of the Christian life. Instead of working ourselves up to be more prolific in our, in our Christian presentation, liturgical dancing and programs, just live the life under the audacity of eternity. And you'll blow the world's mind. The world, the world doesn't have to argue whether abortion is right or homosexuality is right or, or should, we, should we be Republicans or Democrats or idiots or whatever. It's the life. It's the life. And so that's what we, guys, we, we got to keep that as the only point on our compass. This encounter with Christ radically alters me to another world system. And that's what Paul is talking about. I hope I can put it together for you. Three points, and each one will have multiple points in Scripture. The audacity of Christian life, first of all, in spirit, second, in service, and third, in sacrifice. The audacity of the Christian life, first, in spirit. Now, let me show you what I mean. Um, I have always um, got excited to disciple a young man who had a chip on his shoulder. What do you mean? Um, somebody who the Holy Spirit has gotten a hold of with all their heart and is driven. Driven with a concept of the grace of God and the need for people to be rescued. And that's what I fell in love with, Paul. Turn to Acts chapter number 13. 
And just follow these things. They're, they're pretty simple. Three quick points. Acts chapter uh, 13. And look at the first one, verse number nine. We're going to start back at verse number six, but we're going to read down to verse number 10, but the key verse is verse number nine. And when they had gone through into the Isle of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elias, the sorcerer whose so forth by his name, by interpretation, stood with him, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, set eyes on him and said, O full of subtlety and all mystery, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness. I want you to notice something. First of all, Paul was able to perceive by the Spirit and was willing to speak prophetically. Now, you know what? This isn't an insult. This is an indictment. Here is somebody who is sensitive, ready to be to have the word of God taught to them, interested and curious about the things of God. And Paul, with righteous indignation, called him out by the spirit of God. And the spirit of God listened to the words of Paul in his indignation. And God by and and Paul, by the spirit of God, pronounced a judgment on him and all the world knew it. See, there must be, there must be an audacity that our God, that our God in his presentation is willing to back. That's what Paul said in chapter one of Romans. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. And I'm just wondering, is there some Christian who knows about the lostness of man and the only opportunity for salvation is that he hears the gospel, that when lies are told, that there's somebody with the indignation of the Holy Spirit will be willing by the power of God to act and speak on his behalf. I'm tired of weak-willed, sissy, Wilbur Milktoe, spineless Christians who cower away to be politically correct. Somebody has got to stand up for eternity and say, thus saith the Lord. There's got to be somebody who's not worried about losing their home or their bank account or their fame or their life. And Paul called him a rat. There's got to be somebody who is so spirit-filled they can perceive the lie of the devil and not worry about the consequences. Turn over to chapter 17 of Acts. Look at verse number, uh, verse number 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Paul was provoked in the spirit. See, what, we're, what, we're, what we, we have got to look beyond, like the scripture says in Ephesians 6, it's not people. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're dealing with a spirit and a spiritual world. I'm going to say it to you again. You've probably heard me say it before. Everything is spiritual, y'all. Everything. 
God is a spirit. John chapter 4, verse 24. The devil's a spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. The angel's a spirit. Hebrews 1, 5. You're a spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Everything is spiritual. And the reason why there is hesitancy, the reason why there's caution is because we look still at a world from the flesh, the world from an elemental point of view, and forget that everything is spiritual. Nothing happens in a physical world unless it has been decided in the spirit. Where do all our blessings come from? Anybody know? Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us with all in heavenly places in Christ. Everything is spiritual. Everything is decided there. When you're you're looking at an earthly point of view or a humanly point of view, that's the conclusion of the statement. It all has its impetus. It starts spiritually. That's why you cannot approach it not being in the spirit. That's why you cannot approach it without praying, praying desperately in the spirit of God. You cannot do anything for God without the context of the spirit. And that's why it says he was full of the spirit. He was pressed in the spirit. Look over a little further in chapter number 18, verse 5. It says this. Well, we'll start at verse number uh, one. After these things, Paul departed from Athens, came to Corinth, and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because that uh, Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought for their occupation. By, by occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy, Timotheus were coming to Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Pressed in the spirit. Not because they were Jews. Not because they were Gentiles. But because they were lost. They were lost. And he came into the account. Being full of the spirit recognizes that which is not full of the spirit. And there was a yearning because of the spirit of God that when one encounters someone who is not spirit filled, there is a longing, there's a hurt, there's a contrast in their soul that desperately wants the lost to be saved. We were talking yesterday. Uh, Vigie, about the, the, the voice of the martyrs and all the different stories of missionaries. And he was telling me stories, and I was trying to share some stories with him. And I was, I'm sat there in my mind, and I'm thinking, could I endure what those people endured? But there is something about the obedient Christian that God can use that so challenges their heart when they see the opportunity for the lost to know Christ. They're willing to give their life in pain, suffering, and even sacrifice of death. Because God has so convinced them of that. And that's why I love what the scripture says in Hebrews and in Revelation. In Hebrews it says, some were sawn apart, some were stoned, some were burned with fire, some were slain with a sword. You know what? Not accepting deliverance. Because deliverance would have meant that this person I'm trying to reach won't know Christ. You have every right to go before God and say, God, I don't care what it takes Help me, use me to reach this person, that woman, that man, that child. Do whatever it takes. I sacrificed my life for that. And Paul was a continuance of that. You don't believe it. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. All the things that man went through. 
He says, to the Jew I became, to a Gentile I became, you know what? To the rich I became rich, the poor I became poor, that I might in all things by all means save some. You know why? Because that much investment is worthy of just saving one. One. I hear it and you hear it. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? You hear in ministry and, and supporting missionaries and that kind of thing, people say, is it worth it? And, and it breaks my heart. Of, of course it's worth it. Let's, let's, let's turn it around. Are you worth it? If your life, your eternal life was on the line, how would you like if somebody says, you're just not worth it? Jesus hazarded a storm in Mark chapter 4, a demonic storm that tried to kill him and his disciples to cross the lake. And how many converts did he have? One. And then he got in the boat and went right across the street. One. One. And get this. God is not always saying that when you put that much effort and that much sacrifice in it, that the person will get saved. Sometimes God is just obligated for them to hear it. Not that they'll get saved. Everybody thinks there's always going to be success stories and victories. No, the job is just to tell it. And God is looking for someone who's willing to risk everything just so that they might hear. Hear. Here's the next one. Acts chapter uh, um, 19, verse 21. Perception provoked, pressed. Get this one. Acts chapter 19, verse 21, it says this. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit. And know what he purposed to do. He purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Acacia to go to Jerusalem and saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. What, what drives you? What, what drives you? Hey, 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 for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of eternity, what are you looking forward to tomorrow? Forget everything else. For the sake of the gospel and the sake of eternity and fulfilling the spirit of God, what does your heart beat fast for tomorrow? If you have nothing on the agenda, I'm going to say with all the audacity I got, you're backslidden. You're backslidden. He's purposed in the spirit. You remember what it says. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Let me show you something. Verse 6. And it may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. This is 1 Corinthians 16, 7. For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you if the Lord permit. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. Look at verse 9. For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now, you know English language. Y'all Canadian, but y'all talk American. Okay. What is the conjunction? It is a word that brings together two phrases, and by 
the use of the conjunction either continues the tenor and tone of the previous phrase or statement or by the use of a word contrasts 180 degrees, right? So a conjunction brings together similar um, uh, phrases or statements that have the same passion or contrasts them. What are the two greatest known co uh, conjunctions? And and but. And continues the tenor and tone, but contrasts it. Notice, let's go back and look at nine again. He says this, for a great door and effectual are open unto me, and I get to fight. There's a great chance for ministry and people get saved, and I get a chance to fight. He didn't say, but there are many adversaries. He says, and there are many adversaries. Opportunities, openings, opponents, obstacles. Isn't that What are you looking forward to by the spirit of God, by the will of God, for the purpose of God tomorrow? You see, that should be the impetus of your prayer list. That should be the impetus of your prayer list. What I'm praying about today is to prepare me for tomorrow. There's opportunities, there's openings, and there are opponents. I get a chance to This, is there anybody who sees by the passion of their love for Christ the opportunity to flow in the spirit? And flowing, you notice that flowing in the spirit, none of it was really cute. None of it was, was delicious. They were, they were wrestling. Paul says, I wrestled with the beasts that were in Ephesus. You know how I fought in Antioch. You know that they stoned me there. They thought I was dead there. Oh, I get so many great opportunities. Is the audacity of your Christianity, and I love this phrase, living on the cusp of eternity. Is it? That's, that's what the Spirit invites us to. He invites us to that. I, oh, I know we love the high time of singing and fellowship and good preaching and and good food and great discussions and Bible study, that, that's, that's great. But that should not be the norm of your life. You are a soldier, not a party animal. And a soldier without a war is not a soldier. The job of a soldier is to fight. Okay, now let's look at service. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is the last book that Paul will write. Uh, historians tell us that it is within a week or two of his martyrdom. Paul would not be crucified because he was a Roman citizen. Uh, he had to be beheaded. Beheading was supposed to be painless, and a Roman um, who was found guilty of a crime against the state that was not murder would have a painless death, as they say. How did know? Nobody tried and said, yeah, it didn't hurt. Nobody would say that kind of thing. I don't know how they came up with that. But here's Paul's uh, last writing to Timothy. And look at the very first verse. I charge thee therefore before 
God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I charge you. It is the strongest. Forget everything else. It is the strongest mandate in the scripture. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every couple that I marry, I say, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and before these witnesses that you never talk about separation or divorce. And I looked that boy in the face and I said, and you're going to love her and you're going to love him and you're going to provide for her and you're going to obey him and you're going to take care of her and you're going to cook good food for him. I charge them with the strongest charge I can give them. The sobriety of the moment demands it. Well, Paul uses the strongest charge in all of Christian literature. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what he says in verse number two. He says, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Brother Rylander, who was one of the first men who let me preach, said, Dwight, there's only two seasons of the year that you preach the gospel, in season and out of season. He said, preach it when they want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. He says, matter of fact, when they don't want to hear it, preach louder. Preach it. So look at what he says. He's, first of all, he says in verse number five, you've got to change your perspective. Notice what he says, this. He says, but watch thou in all things. What preceded that? He's saying the world is becoming inundated with fables, with philosophies, with teachings of men, ideas, theorems, logics. He says, listen, you preach the word and do it right. How? Do the work by watching in all things. There, it, it amazes me how dull-witted we become as Christians. Jesus told the disciples, watch and pray. Just don't pray, watch and pray. Watch with a spiritual perception that gives you a head start about what Satan is doing. If, you, if you're praying more for people than the perception and wisdom of the Holy Spirit, adjust. He's saying here, change your perspective. Forget about the temporal things. Pray with eternity in view. What are, you, what are you changing by the spirit that will have effect on the world? Watch thou in all things. Watch thou in all things. What are you seeing? I, I, one of the things that I love, my dear, dear friend, Kenny Grant, um, my best friend in ministry, when we get together, when it's just he and I, we'll sit down and we'll talk about what we are seeing spiritually and one time we were in Sedan Bible Mission down in Spring City Tennessee and um, we were sitting down and we were talking about things in the spirit and, and, and the, the conversation got quite engaging and before we knew it there were 50 or 60 people around us not asking questions just listening they wanted to hear someone who was talking about what really mattered. And they were intrigued. And, and then we looked around and I said, oh, uh, didn't know we had an audience. And uh, someone announced it's dinner time. Nobody wanted to eat. They said, keep talking. See, I, you know what I'd like? You know what I'd like? I'd like to come to Canada and uh, me and Nishant would, would sit down and we just invite people over. Just have a, and then we just start talking. 
and the conversation would cause those who are younger, not weaker, but younger in the faith, to just lean in. And it caused them to set their sight toward future things and eternal things. Not gossip, not sports events, but eternity. Present tense eternity. You know that eternity is always in the present tense, not in the future tense. You're living in eternity right now. Eternity is always in the present tense with an eye on the future of time. It is, eternity is always in the present tense with an eye of the future of time. Man is living under the judgment of something called time. We are living under the peace of eternity. And we must speak prophetically about eternity so that they will change their future in time. That's why we discuss. That's why we have discussions. It doesn't have to be organized. It's just got to be godly. Change your perspective. Watch in all things. Change your perspective. Here's the next thing. He says in the next phrase, now change your perspective. He says, be ready for persecution. He says, endure affliction. He doesn't say escape it. He says, endure it. Why? Let me show you why. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. All the T's of the Bible are together. Thank God, otherwise I'd never find them. And look at chapter 3. It says this in verse number 1. Wherefore, when we could uh, no longer forbear, we thought it would be good to be left at uh, Athens alone. We sent Timotheus, our brother, and minister of God, and a fellow literature in uh, gospel Christ to establish you and comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for, new, you, you, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. If you're not having trouble, if you're not having afflictions, if you're not having persecution, saint, again, I'm going to say it again, and I'm not going to take it back, you're backslidden. You're not making an effect in the world of the spirit to the point that Satan sees you as a threat. If Satan is not bothered by your presence, wherever you go, you need to step back, have a good cry, repent, and change There's got to be persecutions. Jesus says, no man having given up houses and lands, mothers and fathers, shall not receive in this life a hundredfold with persecutions. We have such cute sermonettes for Christianettes. People hear half a sermon. To make them feel good, it makes me want to throw up. I don't watch any of the Christian channels. You know why? It's instant spiritual diarrhea for me. I want somebody who will grab a handful of scripture, wrestle with it in the spirit, do some inductive Bible study, and have something to say. Be always ready to give an answer to the reason and the hope that lies within you. I don't care what the context is. I don't care if you're before halls of parliament. I don't care if you're in the neighborhood. I don't care if you're in the park. I don't care if you're on a plane or a bus. Always have an answer. And if you don't see that the effect of someone's eternity may be decided tomorrow and it doesn't bother you. You need to change your perspective. Look at the third thing, not just change your perspective and expect persecution. He says this back in chapter 4. He says, preach. Notice he says this, do the work of an evangelist. What is the job of an evangelist? Not to pass out tracts and put bumper stickers to hold their car together, but to preach. I've never heard anybody preach with keeping their mouth closed. Preach. This is not gender specific, ladies. Preach. 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 
The whole direction of that word is found out in just removing a letter. Preach and reach each. Preach and reach each. Preach. Do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. Sometimes it takes setup. Sometimes it takes time. But it always takes prayer. I had a dear sister in Lord, Sister Ella. She said, oh, God, I would hear her pray with tears running down her face. Don't let them die without them hearing the gospel. She can't make sure they're saved, but they need to be able to hear with the veracity of the Holy Spirit the gospel. Are you praying for someone's life to be extended just long enough so grace could grab a hold of them? And they opt for it. We don't save people. We give them the means by which they can choose to be saved. Are you praying for souls, not so they would be saved, because that might go unanswered for what you're looking for, but that they will be tenderhearted to hear the gospel so that there will be an eternal decision made. I don't care if you decide, I don't want Jesus. Fine. I do care that you get every godly opportunity by the Spirit of God to hear about it. I pray that the removal of obstacles and satanic forces that would impede or hinder the word of God given to you, I pray that those things be broken so that with all that was in me, I can preach to you and you on your own can decide for heaven or hell. That's what I'm praying about with lost souls. That's what I'm worried about tomorrow. Preach. 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 You know what God said, 1 Corinthians chapter 1? He said, when the world by wisdom knew not God, God used what? The foolishness of preaching to save those that would believe. Not liturgical dancing. Jerry and I get up here in black leotards and in Jesus' name. No. Not singing. Not concerts. Not literature. Preaching. Get back to preaching. Open your mouth and preach. 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 Lear and I have a rather bittersweet story. There's a mall, Digi and Joyce and, and Dad have been there called Great Lakes Crossing. It's outside Detroit, about 40 minutes. And we have a standing rule. Huge malls, largest mall in Michigan. Don't sit down. There's tons of places to rest and relax. Don't sit down. And you say, why not? Because by God, there is a man, when he sees you sitting down, he will come and sit next to you and preach the gospel for six hours to you. And you can tell him you're a Christian. It doesn't matter. He's going to keep going. And, we, and sometimes we have, we, we've erroneously just been so tired because such a huge mall, we sit down and then he just shows right up. On cue. And you want to tell him, hey, I'm a Christian. You can leave me alone. Go to somebody else. No, he's going to preach the gospel. He's not sure. He wants you to hear the gospel. He finds a way to use every aspect of your conversation to segue into Christ. Now, you know what? I don't sit down. That's my mandate because I don't need to be saved. Now I'm saved. And so I keep moving. But I praise God for that man who's committed to preaching the gospel. First time I ever went to Philadelphia, Brother Joe Ginyu, who's now in the presence of Jesus, took me. <laughs> Brother Joe didn't drive. He was either driven or he took the subway. He died. He was 89 years old, almost 90 years old. He would ride the subway just so he could hand money to the subway preachers. There are people who were in the subway, as people getting off the trains, who would be yelling, yelling like Jeremiah. There is a bomb in Gilead. And Brother Joe says, I don't have that gift, but I want to encourage the ones who do. 
And he would just take out a handful of money and just press it. Praise the Lord, brother. Keep up the work. Whatever you need, call me. Here's my car. And he would just ride the subways of Philadelphia and encourage the, the subway preachers. One young man that we know quite well, the name is uh, Tony Mammon. Um, got saved maybe four or five years ago, has gotten in love with the word of God, knows that he's not going to be a gifted preacher, knows he's not a singer, knows none of those, that he's none of those things, but he goes in the subways of New York and with threats on his life, he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love him to death. You wouldn't notice him. He's so, so demure, so quiet, so shy. He's so, he's so timid that his brothers scare him with a, with a, with a parakeet. He's, he's scared of animals. But when he gets to a lost person, there's a boldness of Jesus Christ that comes out of that boy that's out of this world. Preach. And then the last thing Paul says to sum up to Timothy is, prove it. Make full proof of your ministry. Make full proof of it. Make full proof of of three things. That it was worth the death of Jesus Christ. That it was worth God investing his spirit in you and giving you the gift. And it's worth the time I gave you. Make full proof of your ministry, Timothy. Prove everybody who were naysayers and said you were too young or too inexperienced. Prove to them that they were wrong. Timothy, I know the tears. I I pastored Ephesus. I know what it's like. I know that there are demons there. I know there's some of the meanest spirited Christians in the world. There are people who stay at home and look in the mirror and practice their frown. I know that. But God has not given us the spirit of fear, but he has given us the spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. Make full proof of your ministry, Timothy. Prove it. Prove it. I said to a girl last week in San Francisco, marginal Christian at best, and she said, I don't know what to do with my life. I'm, I, I, I'm ambitionless. I said, listen, Sarah, live your life so the world misses you when you're gone. Live for the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, there's three mandates that you have. This is Dwight and I talking to you. Three mandates. The first one is supreme. The second one's important. And the third one is good too. Know God and love him with all your heart. Listen, if you got anything else on your agenda, anything else in your menu, anything else in your resume, if the first and foremost thing is not to know God and to love him, rewrite it. Love the Lord. Know him. Love him. Know him. Love him. And here's the next thing. Know and love yourself. Know and love yourself. Please. There's so much asceticism where people are beating themselves up. Why? If Jesus loves you, who, 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 how dare you say that you're worthless? And here's the third thing. Know what you want. Dream. Dream. Tom Skinner, last time I would see him, as he walked up the gangway, back then you could walked to the gate with people in the airport, 1993. Before he walked up that gangway and he would disappear from my eyes until eternity, he patted me on the leg and said, now listen, boy, I charge you before Jesus Christ that one day a week you put your feet up on your desk and dream. Dream. Dream big in the Holy Spirit. Dream big in the kingdom of God, for there is no dream so big that is nothing but a small wisp of so be it from God. You realize that? Make full proof of your ministry. And here's the last thing. Spirit, service, 
sacrifice. Same passage, same chapter. Paul comes out of that, verse number five, watch while in all things, endure inflections, do the work of vengeance, and make full proof of our ministry. And notice he says, for. The word for there is a Greek word, gar. It's an explanatory gar. It gives you the conditions by which he said what he said before. He says, for I am ready to be offered. For I am ready to be offered in the time of my departure as at hand. Let me give you a, a quick explanation of that. The word offered there is a throwback to the old traditions of the Old Testament of sacrifice. You remember what a sacrifice was. Whether it was a heifer or a goat or a lamb, whatever. The sacrifice was caused when a lamb or a goat or a calf was chosen and the carotid artery was slit open. The animal was turned upside down and not one ounce, not one drop of their blood was wasted. It was kept in a, in a metal, highly fired in flame, metal basin. Every drop, they, were, they hang, hung it upside down to every drop, cocked the animal's head. Every drop of blood that there was in this animal was completely depleted. At that point, the body was ready for sacrifice. This is what Paul is using in his phraseology. He says, all that there is, what is, the life is in the, Paul says, all of my life has been poured out into the ministry. There's not a drop left. I have used all of it for the glory of God. Every aspect of my being has been emptied out. I'm not upset I'm being beheaded. If, if Nero didn't kill me, I wouldn't have anything left. Everything is gone. I have given my life in reasonable service because this is what Jesus deserves. There's nothing left. Christian, you are to expend your life so that for the work of Christ, for the cause of the gospel, that at the end of your days, whether it's 50, 60, 18, 100, there's nothing left that Satan can't say, ah, I'll take this part and use it for my glory. No, at the end of it, there's nothing left. Everything has been given for the cause of Christ. Paul says, I am ready. Everything has been poured out of me. I couldn't preach at Ephesus if I wanted to. I have nothing left. I couldn't lead another soul to Christ. I have nothing left. I'm emptied. At the end of my life, I have saved with success. All to Jesus, I surrender. And he gives four illustrations, and here they are. As you know, if you read the Bible, Paul was a sports fan. He talked about races and, and fighting and gymnasiums and exercises and all that kind of stuff. Uh, people say in history he was a hunchback, so I don't know how he pulled all that stuff off. But notice what he says, his first illustration. He says in verse number seven, I have fought a good fight. Now, what is he referring to? He's referring in these illustrations to the Ithmus Games, not the Olympic Games, which were Greek, but the Ithmus Games, which were Roman. And the, the Ithmus Games were different from the Olympic Games. Olympic Games, they gave you a medal and all that kind of stuff. The Ithmus Games were games that you trained for for 10 months. And when the games came, you would give your offering. And one of them it was wrestling. And wrestling was two men would get together. Let's say Brother Dan and I would decide we'd wrestle, and we'd stretch out our arms like this, his tips, my tips, and they would draw a circle a circumference of us. And there were three ways that you could lose or win. You could lose or win by points, points, punches, 
or pressing. Here it is, or pinning. Points. If I can hit you so many vital places, none of them are in the face or on the body, the judge will judge them. Three points, you're out. If you were pushed outside the circle so that even your toe was out, you lost. Not a second chance, you lost. Or you were pinned for a count of three. Now, Paul, notice, does not say, I finished, I, I fought a fight. Fought a fight means it was a draw. Fought a fight was, I got pinned, but I didn't get the third count. I got close to the edge, but he didn't get me out. Or he got enough, put, a lot of punches, but not enough. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I fought the good fight. You know what he's saying? I did the pinning to the count of three. I'm the one that pushed my opponent out of the ring. I'm the one that got all the points. I have fought the good fight. I won every single time. That's why there's nothing left in me. I fought and I won. He said, I fought the good fight. Get the next one. And this one was my most sensitive. He said, I have finished my course. I fought and I finished. And the course that he's talking about is the relay race. It's not a marathon. It's a relay race. And the relay race is so important. The relay race is not, the, the point of the relay race and the, and, and, the, and the importance of the relay race is not speed. What is it? What, say something. Passing the baton, passing the baton, that when you run your aspect of the race, it must start and end with the passing of the baton. Well, guess what? Paul is saying, I ran, I finished my course. I ran all out. I did not embarrass the one ahead of me by running so slow that he had to slow down and wait for me. I did not run uh, uh, aggressively and arrogantly so the guy behind me couldn't catch up to me. No, I did exactly what I was supposed to. I understood, I respected the saints ahead of me and realized that they're running their race, and I caught up with them, and I got in step with them, and they felt comfortable with passing the baton to me. Young people, listen, there is a whole generation ahead of you, and you have got to be willing to stop criticizing and run their race to the point of the handoff where they can feel comfortable and respected with giving you the leadership that they worked so hard to make happen. But listen, Older saints, you cannot be so conceited to say, I did all this work. I'm not just going to hand this off to some young upstart. You must be willing to fall in sync with the one coming behind you and hand off. And I'm going to tell you something. In my years of ministry, 23 years of ministry, 51 years as a Christian, I have not seen handoffs. I've seen drop-offs where the generation before just dropped it on the ground. Young brother told his church in New York, uh, to went to the elders and said, listen, there are people in the community we want to share the gospel with. We, want to, we only use our church six hours a week, the building of our church. Can, can the young men come together and have Bible studies, youth meetings? Can we, can we open our Bible, the, the, the church to the community? Can we spread out letters, do vacation Bible school? And the elders said to him, listen, this is what you want to do. You got some great ideas? Uh-huh. Wait 17 years when I'm dead and you can do whatever you want. And within a year, two years, I'm sorry, that church was split and is no more. And when the, the two factions asked for all those young men, all those young hearts, all those young families, come to our side, they will present, are you going to reach the community? Are you going to reach out? Are you going to reach more than Indians? No. Then you'll never see us again. 
I haven't seen a passing, I've seen a dropping. But I, I, I want to press it even further to you. I'm going to press it past that illustration. Like I said, this is a relay race. And the important thing is the handoff. You don't run the first part of the leg. You don't run the last part of the leg, Christian. You run the middle leg. You know why? Jesus is the author and the finisher of the faith. He's the one that hands off. He's the one you pass it to. Who's running before you? It's Jesus. Who's running behind you? Jesus. Who evaluates your speed? Jesus. Saint, you're not passing off to a person or this life. You're passing it from Jesus, running your race, and then passing it to Jesus. Because it's his life, his race all along. Don't you dare become so self-absorbed that you look at yourself and say, I deserve thy honor. I deserve it. And the interesting thing about the Isthmus Games is this. You know what the reward was? It was a pine needle crown that was twisted and put on your head. And you know what? It lasted before it withered and turned brown. Six weeks. Pine needles and laurel leaves that would turn brown. Now, you know the reason why they did that, that temporary crown that lasted barely six weeks? Because the withering of the crown reminded you to get ready for the next race, you must prepare for 10 months. You can't sit back and enjoy your laurels. It's gone now. There's more work to be done for the next event. See, we, we don't have a chance to relax. We don't have a chance to pat ourselves on the back. There's still more to be done. He fought the good fight. He finished the course. And get this, he fulfilled his life. Notice he says, I have kept the faith. The word kept there is the Greek word telero. It's the same word that's used in Jude 21 where it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. It is a charge of service. He says, I have fulfilled my tick. Now, what is that? Uh, this is a military term. When a Roman soldier was given an assignment, whether it was assignment of a day watch or, or go out to do a campaign or do a place of occupation, he was given a script or a tick. And the tick was that spelled out everything that was required of him. And it was a very lengthy document. And he signed his name or his initials or his mark at every point to say, I understand. And notice what Paul says. He says, I have kept the faith. I have been given instruction, an eyes only document from my king. And he has given me instruction. And at each tick, at each point, every place where I sign my name, I have kept the faith. I did not lose one soul that God put in my care. I did not sleep on my watch. I did not lose a battle. I kept the faith. This is how Paul is saying, I have poured out everything that is in me. Listen, saint. You have the gift of God, eternal life. You have the love of God, his son. You have the spirit of God. Now you have the mandate of God with all the audacity that belongs to you. Live your life to the point of persecution. Preach the word so that the lost can decide. Expend yourself 
so there's nothing left. Give everything for the work of your master. For the work of your master. I'll leave you with this last story. I don't know if I've told it to you before, but please appreciate it for its worth. Ian Barkley, theologian who just, I found out, went home to be with the Lord not too long ago. British theologian was riding on the Orient Express through Europe. He was sharing a compartment with two young men. And he was sitting there and he was reading his word and making his notes for his preaching that he would do in Germany. When something strange happened, one of the young men fell on the floor and just went spasmatically sweating and, and foaming at the mouth. And his friend dropped to the ground and, and, and helped him and just tried to talk to him, trying to get, get him not to swallow his tongue and everything, and, and just, just, just held him and spoke to him softly and just did the best he could. And, and while he's on the ground, he's turning to Ian Barker. He said, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry this is happening. And Ian Barker said, don't worry about it. He said, yes, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry this happened. And finally, a young man got calm, and he straightened out his hair, and he wiped his face, and he held him close. He said, I'm so sorry, sir, forgive us. He said, you don't have to ask for forgiveness. He, he said he had a seizure just last month, and, and usually they're six months apart. I thought he, we could take this trip together. He said, I'm so sorry. Please forgive us. He said, you don't have to ask for forgiveness. He said, what's going on? He said, well, sir, um, the story is this young man and I were in Vietnam together. He's British. I'm an American. And we got caught behind enemy lines. We couldn't find our way back. He said, one night, just trying to get to familiar territory. I stepped on a landmine and he pulled up his pants leg and he had, his leg was blown off, he had a wooden leg. He said, I stepped on a landmine but the majority of the shrapnel went into my friend's chest, just blew it open. And somehow or another he was still alive and he was wheezing but he was still alive. And, and somehow, sir, he, he got to his feet and he began to walk holding his, every time he breathed, blood would just, would just gush out of his chest. And he grabbed me. I couldn't walk. He grabbed me by the collar and step by agonizing step, he pulled me. And I said, leave me alone. Leave me here to die. You can make it. Leave me alone. Just, just let me go. Go. You can make it. And he said with scarred voice, if you die, I die. You die, I die. Five days, 22 miles. He said, we got back to a medevac hospital. They put a wooden leg on me. They took the scrap out of his chest. We survived. I went home. He went home. And then I found out that as a result of that, that blast, he would have seizures the rest of his life. I heard about it. I sold everything I had. I moved to England, became an English citizen, and I'm here to take care of him, and I'm not going to let him live alone. And Ian Barker said, why are you apologizing? That's the most noble thing I've ever heard. That's wonderful. You're a great friend. He said, what? Oh, shucks, man. Oh, shucks. After all he's done for me, there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. What was the last time you looked at your life in a review and were able to say, after all he's done for me, this is the least I could do for him. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world. Please don't find uh, amor in this passing world system, but be transformed 
And it's a process, I admit it, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let your life cause the world to go into a tailspin. Let your life be a contradiction to every lie of Satan. Live your life on purpose in eternity so it'll have effect in time. Please, saints, please. You don't want to appear before him empty-handed. You want to appear before him expended. You don't want to measure your life by years. You want to measure your life by what's left. And you reach that point, I don't care what age it is, if there's nothing left, what a glory to God. Lord, may it be true of your saints that we pour out our life to the blessing and the acceptance of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.